Pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you've assembled us here, and now we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit without limit to all who ask, as Jesus promised you would, and pray that in that we would be drawn to you, to Christ, to the beauty of what you have for us this morning, and we pray that its impact would be felt many, many years from now. Come do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In celebration of its 100th year since it began, the NFL, or the National Football League, just recently ran a contest. And the contest was that one lucky winner would get a pair of season tickets for the next 100 years. And so it meant that not only would the person who won be able to go to every game for the rest of their life, but also that they'd be able to pass down these season tickets to their favorite team for the next 100 years, for the next future generations. I found it a very interesting contest, partly because built into it are some assumptions. Assumptions, for example, that a century from now, this game will still be around and will be meaningful to everyone, that will still be crazy about football in America. But also, built into it is an assumption about the winners, that these winners and the line that would come from them would continue to care about this game one century from now, that in 2120, they'll still be rooting for this team. That for a hundred years, and I did the math, that's three or four generations from now, that fans of this team will raise sons and daughters who root for this team, who will then raise sons and daughters who will root for this team, who will raise sons and daughters who do the same. So for example, I watched a video of the runner-up, a nationwide contest. The runner-up was from our city. Second place was a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and I watched his video. And in the video, he said that this began for him with his grandfather. And there was a picture of his grandfather and his father and him and his siblings all watching the Eagles together. Three generations down. And then he said how every Sunday, these three generations would gather to watch the game. And now the video showed a four-year-old little girl that he had. She was wearing midnight green, and her favorite player was Brian Dawkins, and he was training her up. And so he said, tell us, what do we say? And this four-year-old went, boo, cowboys, boo, cowboys, right? Because he's training her up in the way that she should go. And so this man was essentially saying what? For the next hundred years, as for me and my family, we will love the Eagles. That's what this man was saying, right? Now, for you, it may not be football, but through the generations, maybe it's a recipe that has been passed down from family, from mother to daughter to granddaughter. Maybe it's some jewel or some heirloom or, or some family business that's gone from father to son to grandson. But whatever it is, you have these precious things that are passed down one generation to the next to the next. I say that because that's what we see in 2 Timothy as well. In fact, by my count, would you consider that I think that the scope of what we see in 2 Timothy, at the very least, spans five generations. Five generations of believers, five generations of followers in Jesus Christ. For example, Paul will say to Timothy, as you just heard in the opening of his letter, I am thankful and reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. And then, would you consider just this verse he says in 2 verse 2. He'll tell Timothy, Timothy, what you have heard from me 
in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So consider the scope of 2 Timothy with me. This began with your grandmother, Lois, and then it was passed down from Lois to her daughter, Eunice. And with Eunice and this spiritual father, Paul, it was passed down to Timothy, a third generation. But it doesn't stop there because what you have heard from, Tim from me, Timothy, you are to entrust to faithful men who will do what? Who will be able to teach others also? The scope of just this one letter is that this should go from a grandmother to her daughter to her grandson, who will then teach it to faithful men, who will be able to teach it to others also. I did the math. I looked it up. That's about 150 years of faith in just this one epistle. 150 years. All of this beginning from a woman named Lois. And God using her so that she was essentially saying, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And it did so for five generations. She had spiritual sons and daughters who loved Jesus just like she did. It's Mother's Day. And I want to suggest here's why this matters, Seven Mile Road. Here's why this matters. It matters because if you were here just a few weeks ago, when we started this letter, you might remember that I shared with you a study of the state of Christianity in our day. This foundation called the Pine Tops Foundation had released this study about the state of Christianity and what's expected in the next three decades. It said that over the next 30 years, about 35 million youths who have grown up in the church Little ones like the ones that are in Sunday school right now or sitting next to you. 35 million youths, more than a million a year, will walk away, disaffiliate from Christianity and walk away from the faith. That's the stat that we heard a few weeks ago. And moreover, with that coupled with the number of churches that are expected to close in the next decade or so, the statistics was we needed some 8,000 new churches every year. For the next 30 years, 240,000 churches in the next three decades for the gospel to remain, let alone advance in this place. And so when you hear that, what does that make you consider? I'd almost ask you, however, what if our sons and daughters aren't automatically doomed to be a part of the 35 million? What if we don't have to write them off and consign to the fact that they're going to walk away? Instead, for example, my wife, Shainu, she was saying that as soon as she heard that, God put in her own heart this desire to pray for this specific congregation that there would be from this church sons and daughters who would grow up to be church planters and missionaries. I thought it was a great prayer. I, I'm praying it myself. I commend you to pray it as well. What if, rather than, and I'm not talking everywhere, I'm speaking to you as, as a pastor of yours, what if we prayed that our sons and daughters weren't necessarily part of the 35 million that walked away, but are among those that stayed, maybe even planted the necessary churches that we'll need in the years to come, and took the gospel to the ends of the earth? To that end, here's what I'm saying. What if today, and I know it's just an ordinary Sunday, but what if today, by God and his spirit, was a sacred moment where we could recognize that what we do and who we are today matters. And it will matter in the next 30 years. And dare I say, it will matter in the next 150 years. 
What if on this very ordinary Sunday, you and I hear by God's will and through his Holy Spirit, God a vision, that what we are and who we are and what we do will matter 150 years from now. Five generations from now, it'll still matter. So today's Mother's Day. Added to that, you have witnessed Justin and Sarah dedicate their son to the Lord. To stand here and essentially say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And with all of that in view then, what if we took a slight excursus from our normal preaching through the text and stayed in 2 Timothy, but especially considered the pair of mothers that we see in this letter and asked ourselves, what does it look like to raise spiritual offspring, to raise spiritual sons and daughters? And I want you to highlight with me that word spiritual sons and daughters. Because what we're talking about today matters whether you're married or single. Because what's in view in 2 Timothy is not just a biological genealogy. We'll see that again in a second. But rather a spiritual heritage. And for all who know Jesus Christ, you have been called to make disciples, to bring up sons and daughters in the faith. This is why Paul can begin his letter to Timothy, my beloved child, though he was not his biological father. He had become his spiritual dad. And so this unmarried single man could speak of his spiritual offspring. So likewise, all who know Jesus should hear this and consider with us, what does it look like to raise up spiritual sons and daughters, to pass on this faith, that it might be passed on and passed on still for the generations to come? There are two passages in 2 Timothy where we hear what God used, or better even, better even whom God used, to shape Timothy to become who he became. Two passages. You just heard Kurt read them for us that help us see how Timothy became Timothy. And, and can I just remind you for a second of who Timothy was? Timothy was the, the man who became a believer at a very young age. When Paul showed up in his city, everybody was talking about the young believer Timothy. It says the believers spoke well of him. He had a reputation that preceded him, and, and he was recruited onto Paul's team and became Paul's co-worker so that when Paul wrote a letter, Almost all of them, there's hardly any of his letters in the New Testament that doesn't mention Timothy. Moreover, Timothy was imprisoned for his faith, just like Paul was, so that the writer of Hebrews will say, we want you to know our brother Timothy was recently released. This man who would go on to do ministry, of whom we heard Paul say in Philippians, I have no one like him. How did God forge this young minister? How did God shape him? Let me read for you again the two passages. The first one is 1 verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And then in chapter 3 verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's just make two observations from these section of verses. Here's the first. We want to consider how God used Timothy's spiritual mothers to bring him to faith in Christ Jesus. 
How did God use Timothy's spiritual mothers to bring him to faith in Christ Jesus? And I want to again say, look at the word spiritual. Because Timothy had a dad, but he's not in view in 2 Timothy. In Acts, we learn that he had a biological father, but he wasn't a believer. And so the emphasis, the focus of 2 Timothy is not on the physical lineage, but the spiritual one. That's the ancestry that Paul draws to mind. That's the one he highlights and focuses on. These spiritual forces in Timothy's life that shaped him to be who he was. So how does God use these spiritual mothers to bring young Timothy to faith? Apparently, it turns out that Timothy had one of those, what we would call, boring testimonies, right? The beauty of a very boring testimony. When Timothy stood up to tell his story, it sounded nothing like his older mentor, Paul's. Can you imagine when Paul and Timothy show up to a city, and they're starting to evangelize all the people, and they're starting to tell the people about Jesus? Paul would go first, and Paul would start telling these unbelievers, and he'd say, listen, if you don't really care about Jesus, I cared about him much less. In fact, I wasn't indifferent about Jesus or Christianity. I hated Jesus, and I hated Christianity, and I thought the world would be better if we eliminated the world of Christianity, and so I was actively against Christianity. I did everything I could to eliminate it and exterminate it. Whenever there was a Christian, I sought to jail them, or if I could, kill them. I was always against Christianity. In fact, I was headed to a place to exterminate more of them when a light came out of the heavens, and literally the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to me knocked me out my horse and then I went blind for three days and nights I didn't eat or drink a thing then I was led blind into a city God showed up to a man named Ananias told him to come to my house this man said do you know Lord that he's out to kill Christians and he said yes and he came anyway he put his hand on me and said brother Saul and suddenly the scales from fell from my eyes he told me about Jesus I got up and I got baptized and I've become a Christian ever since Timothy now your turn Can you imagine Timothy going, I hate when he does this. Because now Timothy's got to go up and go, well, I grew up in a believing home, and mom was a believer, and grandma was a believer, and they took me to church all the time, and I grew up in Saturday school, and then we had a youth group, and then there were some people who told me the Bible, and I had youth meetings, and we had family prayer at night, and we read the Bible, and I've always loved God. Like, can you imagine how boring his testimony is next to Paul's? But listen, here's the beauty of this whole thing. That means that if you, if you ask Timothy, Timothy, when did you become a believer? When did God become important to you? That'd be like asking Timothy, Timothy, when did you know that blue was blue? Tell me, when did you suddenly realize that blue was blue? And Timothy would say, I don't know, blue's always been blue. I've never remembered it being anything other than blue. Timothy, when did God become important to you? I don't know. I was read Jesus Storybook Bible. And sang over and prayed over when I was falling asleep from my infancy. And grandmom and mom talked about Jesus and God all the time. And Yahweh was always on their lips. And when Paul told us about Jesus, our hearts immediately connected the dots. We always hit the atmosphere and oxygen of our home was always filled with love for God. The importance of God. The things of God. Samar wrote, here's what that means. It takes incredible heavenly grace. To save a terrorist like Paul. But here's the other beautiful thing. It takes incredible heavenly grace to save a child like Timothy. It's one kind of unbelievable grace to take an 18-year-old, hell-bent, rebellious, wayward, atheistic sinner. 
But it takes no less incredible heavenly grace to save an eight-year-old and keep them to 18 and 28 and 88. Do you know the grace that it takes to walk a child all the way through adolescence and, and young adulthood and, and all the way to old age? The kind of long arm of the Lord that you need to reach through for eight decades worth of faith? It takes an unbelievable amount of grace. And so let's celebrate the testimonies of the Lord however they come. And thanks be to God that he wins people in all manners of ways. Thanks be to God that he'll save some of us like he saved a brother in our congregation, John Lamb. He's in our GCM, our smaller community. So the other week he shared his timeline, his story. And he would tell you that he grew up in a, in a home without much faith and all of a sudden bumped into a high school friend. And being around this high school friend and his believing family, there was something, something about the culture of that friend's home that was so different and distinct than his own. And so he's with this family and observing this family. And this friend of his sends him an email back then when email was so rare. And he got an email and he opened it with excitement and all these Bible verses. Except he didn't have a Bible and had to hunt one down. And didn't know what chapters and verses were or how you'd find them. And had to be tutored and taught in all the things of God for they were completely foreign to him. Thanks be to God that God saves people like that. But you know, thanks be to God also that he saves people like our friend Mike Bowder, who's been a part of our congregation. You know, Mike once told me that when he was born, his father literally took his newborn son and the first thing Mike ever heard was his father preaching the gospel to him. He held his newborn baby and began to preach the gospel to him and said, Son, could you picture it? You are so loved by God. Looked at this newborn and said, You know that God loved you and me so much that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. I mean, a boy that had just caught his first breath in the earth being told that he was a sinner needing grace from Jesus Christ. And that God loved him and sent Jesus for him and that Jesus died for him and rose for him. And that if he would repent and believe of that good news, then he too would have eternal life. With the vision that one day this dad would holding this son that they would soon enough become brothers in Christ. I mean, that's the other way God saves. Praise the Lord that he saves in all manners of ways. But praise the Lord that he saves through fathers and mothers and grandmothers. Praise the Lord that, that in just the ordinary culture of a Christian home, the atmosphere of the gospel might come and breathe new life into the lungs of these sons and daughters. And listen, Seven Mile Road, sometimes these seeds sown will take a long time to germinate. But do not grow weary, for they take long times, long seasons. They'll be wandering in waywardness, but do not grow weary. For example, this week I was reminded of the story of Augustine. Whether you're Christian or not a Christian, you have likely heard of St. Augustine and the influence he's had. In fact, in Western civilization, Christian or not, he stands as a giant among the rest, particularly in Western Christianity. In fact, it's said that outside of the Apostle Paul, few men have had the impact that Augustine has had. But if you know his story, you'll know that Augustine didn't start with Augustine. Augustine's story actually started with a mother of his, his mother named Monica. And Monica was much like Timothy's mother. Timothy had an unbelieving pagan dad and a Christian mom. 
And in the same way, Augustine's mom was a believer, his dad was a pagan, had no faith in Jesus Christ. And this mom tried to raise her son in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, tried to pour Jesus to him, read the Jesus storybook Bible to him, tried to tell this little one about Christ. And Augustine wandered from that which his mom was seeking to put into his heart. And for years... In fact, his teenage years and his early 20s were engulfed in messing around with a cult and chasing every sexual experience that he could. In fact, this mom was so after this boy that when Augustine moved to Rome, Monica literally picked up and moved after him. That's like you going off to college and mom getting a dorm room next to you because she's not going to let you go. She's the first helicopter parent there was. And she wasn't going to let this boy go. She would talk to every priest and every pastor and say, would you talk to my son? Would you please plead with him? Would you please instruct him? Till finally one bishop got so fed up of all this pleading, he'd say, listen, listen. And this became this famous quote. Bishop Ambrose told Monica, my dear, the son of these tears shall not perish. And wouldn't you know, soon enough, all those seeds sown would sprout and germinate. And eventually this man became a Christian. And God let Monica live long enough to see him baptized. And then soon after she died, and when Augustine wrote of her in his confessions, he wrote, speaking of his mom, now gone from my sight, one who for years had wept over me, that I might live in your sight, O God. See, this is what God loves to do. He loves to take the home that you are building and cause sons and daughters and the seeds that you are sowing, though they may take years to germinate, to cause these little ones to come to Christ. And if you want to know how did Monica do it or Lois do it or Eunice do it, what did they do? It's right here in in verse 14. In chapter 3, verse 14, it says to Timothy, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. How from childhood you were acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me read you a paraphrase of it from a, a version called The Message. And it just paraphrases so that you can hear it. He's essentially saying, Timothy, stick with what you have learned and believed. Sure of the integrity of your teachers. Why you took in the sacred scriptures with your mother's milk. There's nothing like the written word of God for showing you the way of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We'll get to it when we get to chapter 3. But Paul is writing in chapter 3, essentially telling Timothy, Timothy, the day is quickly coming when the world will nosedive into sin. And in fact, the people you grew up with in the pews next to you, they'll turn away also. It'll not just be outside, but from within the church as well. It's it's almost as if Paul would say in our day, listen, Timothy, before you know it, 35 million of your peers will walk away. But as for you, as for you, Timothy, you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. You stay true to what you learned, having been from your childhood, And the word there is literally the word for infancy or a newborn. The the vision there is of a, a newborn child held in hands being taught the scriptures. How from childhood, from infancy, you were acquainted with the scriptures, which are able to make you wise to faith in Jesus Christ. 
If we're to see spiritual offspring, then Lois and Eunice would model for us, we must love our Bibles. We must read our Bibles. We must live our Bibles. You'll see in a moment that Paul will say, and you know from whom you lived it, meaning that their testimony wasn't inconsistent with the message that they were proclaiming to him. There was nothing in their lives that invalidated their message. You know from whom you learned it, and you know what you learned from them. And so they read their Bibles, and they loved their Bibles, and they lived their Bibles, and they taught their Bibles to their sons and daughters. Listen, Sabmaron, I know we want our children to advance in everything. There is nothing this world has to offer that we don't want to give to our sons and daughters. We want them sprinting ahead of us in millions of ways. But the question for us is, what does it profit if we give them the whole world and they lose their souls? If we will not acquaint them with the scriptures, which are able to make them wise to faith in Jesus Christ. It means if if you're a mom or dad who doesn't know the Bible well, then you make it your purpose to know the Bible well because you're the one who's going to have to teach them. And you seek every aid and every help so that you might be able to pour the scriptures to your sons and daughters. I hope you're getting a vision that God intends to use Monica's and Lois's and Eunice's to craft, to create, to grow up the Timothys that are sitting right around us. But here's the other thing in this passage. Not only did God use Timothy's spiritual mothers to bring him to faith, but the second thing, the second observation I want you to see is, let's consider how God used Timothy's spiritual mothers to keep him in the faith. Because the view of this letter is not only what God used to bring Timothy to saving faith, but to keep him in saving faith. Not only to introduce him to faith in Jesus Christ, but to keep him in faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to consider, why in this letter does Paul bring up Timothy's mothers? You don't see it in all the letters. Why in this specific letter does he have Timothy consider his mom? And his grandmom, written about in two times, not in some random detail that didn't matter. But why did Paul bring up spiritual ancestry, Timothy's spiritual genealogy? Why did he want Timothy looking back and thinking of them? How do they advance what Paul is trying to argue in this letter? What purpose do they serve? Remember with me that this letter is intended to ensure that Timothy endures. Remember, that's the purpose of this letter, that he keeps going. That it wasn't enough that he got started, but that he needs to keep going. And more than that, finish well. Remember, this letter was written so that Timothy wouldn't bail on Jesus. And wouldn't bail on Jesus' ministry. And so here's the thing. As Timothy faces a life and a ministry marked with suffering, where everyone around him is going to fall apart and fall away, If ever there was a time for Timothy to be reminded and encouraged that he is not alone, that in fact he stands with and in solidarity with the people he most respected in the world, it was now. If Timothy ever needed to be reminded, listen, the people that are most precious to you and most respected by you, they stand with you. Because what does 3.14 say again? As for you, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, and then pay attention to this, knowing from whom you learned it. That jumped out to me this week. 
Meaning Paul's argument isn't even, Timothy, what you believed is trustworthy, but who you believed it from is trustworthy. Knowing from whom you believe. Part of Paul's appeal then is not just what Timothy believes, but from whom he believed it. And the whom there is literally in plural. Meaning there were a few folks. Remember your grandmother. And remember your mother. And remember even me. All this company of people that God had put into your life. You see, that which was dearest to Timothy, namely the good news about Jesus had come to him from those who were dearest to him. So that to walk away from Jesus was tantamount to walking also away from them. To bail on Jesus was to bail on them because they who he had once thought reliable had entrusted this good news to them. And it was supposed to pull on Timothy's soul like a magnet and say, you know what you have learned and you know from whom you learned it. That the integrity of what you believed was tied also to the integrity of those from whom you believed it. And to walk away from Jesus was to walk away from them. It was supposed to be this powerful force in his life. I can tell you for me, when doubt creeps into my soul, part of what I'm remembering is those from whom I learned it. And that to walk away from Jesus would be to walk away also from them. But I trust them. And so Timothy did here also. The point here is Timothy is surrounded by a cloud of his own witnesses who are pushing him to run the race set before him with endurance. That these cloud of witnesses, these people in his legacy, this people behind him were not only the means to bring him to faith but also to keep him in faith. Paul is reminding Timothy, and there's a lesson for us here as well, That if we hear it as we consider our own spiritual ancestry, our own spiritual family trees and genealogies, it's to remind us, brother, sister, hear me. You too are not cut off or alone or isolated as you try to follow Jesus in these days. You're not doing something that wasn't done before. You're not popping up out of nowhere. Instead, there is a long line behind you of people who have done the same. You see, we are to remember that God has assembled for each one of us our own cloud of witnesses that are calling us to endure, to keep going, to keep on. There's one preacher named Ray Ortland. He said, this passage is saying to us, we should all assemble our own spiritual genealogies for they will remind us who we are even in those times where we forget ourselves. When we don't know who we are, these people from whom we came from will reorient us and remind us to who we are. So you know what we're to do? We're to look back. I'm to look back when I come to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. I'm to look back and I'm to see that at the same time the Apostle Paul was planting the church in Corinth, an apostle named Thomas had sailed all the way to India. And I'm to remember that some of the first converts in a nation that had few converts and still does, believed in Jesus Christ. I'm to remember that generations after that, a man named Abraham Malpan was raised up by God, and he was called the Luther of the East. And now came about this reformation so that the Bible was translated into the language that my ancestors could read. And family prayer was against reinstituted, and evangelism re-engaged. And closer to my own story, I'm to see my grandmother, 
and see my parents and see cousins and Sunday school teachers and older brothers in my church who took an interest in me when I was just a teenager. I'm to remember seminary professors. I'm to remember a church planter in Boston who took a 24-year-old seminarian under his wing when he didn't know his right hand from his left. I'm to remember counselors and pastors that God put in my path, all of them forming this cloud of witnesses that are calling out to me, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. That I can't possibly walk away from that and them and this. That as long as we stay true to what came from them, that we won't betray them or the ones that are coming after us. Here's what I'm telling you. If you're here and you're a believer, you you may not have had Timothy's mom. You may not have had Christian parents at all. You might be here. And listen, you might be, if you're here and you're not a believer, you might be the lowest that starts a new thing from your line for the next 150 years. God might have brought you here today so that four generations, five from now, you might be the one that began because Jesus saved you. And if you're here and you do have a spiritual genealogy, and again, not a physical one, Paul begins his letter to my child, to someone who wasn't his biological child, drawing him into the family. If you're here, then listen to me. God has given you your own cloud of witnesses and they whisper to your soul, keep going. Don't quit. Don't stop. And then Sevmaro, did you hear me? As a result, you will be needed by sons and daughters 30 years from now and 150 years from now. As Ray Ortland said, do not underestimate the importance of your life you will matter to generations yet unborn. You will matter to people who are not yet here. Because, brother and sister, soon enough, you will be the whisper in the soul of sons and daughters generations from now. Your life matters more than you could possibly know. Because I'll tell you this, a few generations from now, when all of us in this room are gone, there are going to be people in a church And they're going to open to 2 Timothy. And they're going to read this passage. And as they are called to continue and to know from whom they learned the gospel, they will sit there thinking about you. Because you will matter 150 years from now. The legacy you leave and the faithfulness you have will matter to generations 150 years from now. So I'm hoping that on this Mother's Day, you'll catch a vision for what God might do through you. Why today matters. Let me end by telling you this. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. So let me show you a picture, and I'll I'll end for today. That first picture, that's my Lois and Eunice. I'm no Timothy, but God gave me a Lois and a Eunice. My Lois is 98 years old. And for the first eight years of my life, she lived in our home. 
and every remembrance I have of her was reading the scriptures or praying. I remember as a young boy, a six-year-old who would wake up with a nightmare, no matter what time of the day or night it was, there was a light in her room and it seemed like she was awake reading scripture or praying. And I'd run like a seven-year-old to her room in the middle of the night and there she would be and she'd pray for me and send this boy back to sleep. And I remember engaging her in conversations. I went to visit her a few years ago. Now she's bedridden in 98, but the last time I saw her, she had written this song of her longing to go and be with the Lord. I have a video of it, but it's in my native language, so I can't show it to you, but I, I, I wrote down what she sang. She wrote this song where she said, a home to dwell in forever is being prepared for me. The host of heaven is surrounding me. The time for my sufferings to end is near. My Savior's dear footsteps I'm embracing. And forsaking worldly pleasures, his kingdom I will soon reach. And then she raised a Lois. I, uh, this Lois raised a Eunice. My mom, who while I was growing up, she was growing up. In fact, she would say that she came to faith in my own childhood. And this woman taught me what she knew as she was learning it. In fact, I still remember that the way she taught me to read English was by opening the Bible and making me read scripture. That how, that's how I was taught the language. And so from a young age, I became acquainted with the scriptures which are able to make one wise to faith in Jesus Christ. I remember when I was just a nine-year-old boy, a preacher had come to town and he proclaimed the gospel and he said anyone who wanted to trust in Christ could come down to the front. I was too young to go by myself. And so literally my mom had to walk me down to Christ. This woman literally walked me down to receiving Jesus Christ. That's what God gave to me. And then the other picture. Well, the other picture is everything that I'm trying to say to you this day. It's a picture of a woman and her daughter and her granddaughter and her great-granddaughter with the hope that all of them will soon enough be sisters in Christ. See, what you are, it's just an ordinary Sunday. But this day matters 150 years from now. Who we are and what we do matters. Let's pray.